Hello, and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guests this week are David Wasco and Sandy Reynolds Wasco, an Oscar winning production design couple whose credits include Reservoir Dogs, Kill Bill, and Inglorious Bastards. You can catch part one of our conversation right now on the podcast, where we talk about the Wasco's creative approach to films like Wes Anderson's The Royal Tenenbaums and Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. But in this week's episode, we dive deep into the making of one of my favorite films of all time, Damien Chazelle's La La Land. In our conversation, we briefly talk about the history of Los Angeles in movies and the challenge of trying to reinvent the city over the course of 11 different films before we shift our conversation entirely to La La Land. David and Sandy discuss how the Damien Chazelle musical was originally cast with two very different actors in mind, how the one-year pre-production delay ultimately brought David and Sandy to design the movie as we know it today, how the score and dance choreography of the movie dictated the size of every single set, and much more. If you'd like to hear new content, you might want to hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes from Soundstage Axis. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. I was thinking about Tenenbaums in, in New York. We're in London now. We talked about so many different cities. Berlin would inglorious. And before asking you specifically about La La Land 2, I was wondering if I could take a moment to ask you a little bit about your relationship with, you know, the city of Los Angeles. Because mm. you guys have portrayed LA in, you know, 11 movies from Reservoir Dogs to La La Land Collateral. I know I can feel the love that you have for the city because you describe it in this way. Quote, we love LA. We're honored every time we're invited to capture it again as a fantastic city does everything changing even with sections which are evaporating being torn down it's our job to capture it on screen during the little window of time we have before it's too late close quote as movie makers we have this wonderful opportunity where all movie makers if they're going to do something about and shoot the city it's fantastic you can capture it and then it's for all to look at in eternity to see what the city looked like going back not too far one of my favorite movies about la a couple to, to live and die in la the friedkin movie it looks a certain way and we've referenced from that and then also straight time about dustin hoffman another jewelry store heist movie it was done in the late 70s it looks totally different sunset boulevard sunset boulevard L.A. looks a certain way. And then also the Fred McMurray, wonderful, fantastic Fred McMurray. Double indemnity. Double indemnity. (laughs) You're able to go into grocery stores and everything. So we we basically get to capture on film and you can kind of preserve the city. We love the city. We're both transplants from New England, but we've now called L.A. our home since like 1980. So we're really Southern California. And we we love L.A. And we have sort of fallen into neither Sandy nor I are architects, but we've fallen into being architects for movies and we have become good friends with some Los Angeles architects and we are lucky to know kind of a star architect or a star architect uh, Craig Hodgetts, who is a good friend of Frank Geary's and actually Craig is a good friend of Sid Mead, who is a visual consultant that has done Blade Runner. And Craig has said to me that 
Frank Gehry, and this is contrary to what I feel, I, I'm bummed at, at how the city is before your eyes. They're tearing down fantastic. There's some wonderful even skyscrapers and things that have been just demolished, and they're part of the look of the city. And L.A. cares less about that than some of the other cities around America. But what I thought was interesting, Craig Hodgetts had said that he knows that Frank Gehry is not that concerned about some of his buildings being torn down or altered. The point that I'm trying to make is that we get to kind of freeze frame on certain time periods in L.A. when we're doing our movies if we get to shoot around the city and if L.A. is being shown as L.A., because often it's supposed to not be L.A. It's like Toronto, like we're doing the thankless art direction where Toronto is L.A., you know, and we were shooting outside and it's supposed to be Los Angeles. So when you're shooting L.A., you're actually capturing it and grabbing it. But I thought it was interesting that Craig said that this iconic architect that has done some of the big, huge, world-known buildings around L.A., he doesn't care that much about his stuff being torn down or that's part of the evolution of a, of a city. So we're lucky that we get to capture it. We've been lucky. I think you mentioned, I think the count is about 11 filmed in, in LA, but then you can even put Molly's Game as an additional movie because it's LA, but not shot in LA. It's, it's So we've done these incredible takes on Los Angeles. So we love L.A. and occasionally get invited to do a, a look of L.A., like with Damien Chazelle. He wanted this fantastical look at L.A. for L.A., but he wanted it to be this kind of incongruous juxtaposition of real L.A. side by side with some fakery, you know, movie sets. And actually the actors dance through like real L.A. and they go right into then these movie sets and and we succeeded in that so it was a wonderful opportunity but to do LA through the eyes of Tarantino where you're looking at it for Reservoir Dogs kind of off kilter you know Pulp Fiction even more off kilter it's kind of oddly it's LA but it's it's kind of weird then down to Collateral which is pretty straightforward but it's also stylized and has a look to it because I'm pretty sure it was the very first digitally shot movie up until then everything has been on film so we're we're extremely fortunate yeah, with with that i visited and came to la for the first time when i was older so at 28 so i came with all this information about the city that sort of colored what my expectations and it's sort of when you think of iconic cities when you think of rome you picture something i mean people who haven't visited there there's certain elements you think, oh, that's Rome. And the same with Paris, oh, that's Paris. And when you come to L.A., it's not really about the history or the architecture. It's about how it's been seen in films. And secondly, maybe literature and art, but mostly how it's been seen in old movies, talkies, and then TV shows, too, because they're also sort of international. And then when you arrive, you're seeing a noir alley and you're seeing a Dancing in the Rain light post. You're seeing the Hollywood sign and the Griffith Park Observatory. So all of those things are part of the reality. But then as you get to know it, then there's the all the other sides to it. But people come to it and do movies about it because you're instantly being able to tap into the past in a way. Quentin's all in Pulp Fiction, we reached back to all a lot of different periods in L.A. We did the noir with the 30s sort of dope bucks department, the 40s boxing movies that Butch is in. We 
all those furnishings were actually all 40s. And it goes right up to the 50s Jackrabbit Slims. All those things are sort of L.A. things that when you walk into the sets, the audience knows sort of the history of those. Well, that they was know... yeah, the influence for Jackrabbit Slims, which was a big built set in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, We had just finished, I'm going to go back and mention the name I mentioned earlier, another mentor production designer, architect, Craig Hodgetts. He's a brilliant illustrator. He needed help. He was doing a museum exhibit, and we worked for a couple of months doing, it was at the Museum of Contemporary Art in downtown Los Angeles, an architecture exhibit called the Case Study House exhibit, which was definitely off. Mm -hmm. People did not know what that was, and we did this exhibit, which featured a few houses that we built full-size, and our job, Sandy's and my job, was to oversee full-size reproduction of a few houses, including the Ames house, which is very interesting, and the Buckstall house, which is a very, very famous house by Pierre Koenig. It's used in a million videos and a million movies. We built it exactly full-size with all the furniture, and then we had to dress them to the period. So we had just come off of that museum exhibit, and we then got the job to do Pulp Fiction. So right ingrained in our brains was these iconic, for lack of a better term, mid-century. It's actually Googie style, which is another architectural reference for architecture that was by John Lautner, who did these fantastical residences and houses. He did this circular spaceship-looking house that was used in the Brian De Palma movie, Body Double. But we were influenced by him, and then we wove that into the design of Jackrabbit Slims, this kind of nightclub that they can go into and they were playing slot cars and we had facades of houses that looked like modern houses but all that wasn't really in vogue in the early 90s it's now super popular and hip with the mid-century thing and it has not diminished it's still a big thing and the architecture that was popular in the city drove the look of that big set that we did in in Pulp Fiction. Ladies and gentlemen now the moment you've all been waiting for, it's a world-famous Jackrabbit Slim's Twist Contest. Now this is where one lucky couple will win this handsome trophy that Marilyn here is holding. Now who will be our first contestants? Right here. Want to dance? No, 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 no. I do believe Marcellus, my husband, your boss, told you to take me out and do whatever I wanted. And now I want to dance. I want to win. I want that trophy. So dance good. Since we are talking about LA, then allow me to transition, as you were saying, into La La Land as well, because I wanted to carve out a little bit of our conversation talking about that movie. Even before getting to production, yeah. I would like to shine a spotlight on the massive pre-production that was that film. I forget how yeah, many it, months it, you had. Yeah, La La Land, it was an unlucky, but it became lucky thing for us in that we were hired to do it. It was moving ahead. We were prepping. And although modestly budgeted, we had the standard, I forget it was maybe eight weeks or, or seven weeks or whatever to do all the sets. And they had a casting pickup and one actor fell away. It was Miles Teller. Oh, no. Yeah, it was, it was initially Teller, with Miles Teller and Emma Watson. Fell away, yeah. And then the other actress that... It was Emma Watson, Emma right? Watson fell away. 
So the show kind of went into a stall, but what was fortunate was we, we were actually being paid and then we went off the clock, but because I had a very strong feeling about this movie. And I would also say that that's one of the reasons why I have this odd second sense where I can tell like when we were working on Pulp Fiction, I knew it was going to be a really cool movie. I knew it. There's no question. When you watch everything, I can tell. And I can tell about that. So it was worth it to us to hang in there. We hung in there for almost a year. And in that time, we kept in touch with Damien. It wasn't that we were working nine to five, six days a week. We were, we're, we're working on it. We were going on about our lives. But we were, oh, this would be a good Mia exterior for her apartment. So we were actually working on it for a long, long time. And then when it finally the casting kicked in with the replacement actors, which was Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, we had a lot figured out. And it's very interesting because another mentor designer, Larry Paul, who we know as just socially and also as a friend, he was the dean of production design at Chapman University down in Orange County. He's done some of my favorite movies, The First Blade Runner, Paul Schrader's Blue Collar. If you haven't seen it, it's fantastic, fantastic real world movie. He said the same thing happened on Blade Runner. I don't know the actual logistics or what happened, but it was a, obviously a bigger movie. It was a studio movie. Something happened. The money fell out or something. I don't remember exactly what happened, but they dwindled down to a skeleton art department and kept the art department on designing for almost a year. That translated then into maybe one of the most masterful L.A. movies, L.A. in the future. It wouldn't have been what it is had he not had the year. Same thing happened on La La Land. We were going. It shut down. We kind of kept working on it. So that's what really helped us make the movie that it became. It was like we had the luxury of that extra time. And if I can say one of the big things that is now becoming common in movie making now with art direction, it's becoming more and more compromised in that there's less and less time, even on these much bigger movies, they want to have less prep time. And prep time is really where you figure stuff out. And it's going back to what I was saying is what our job is. Basically, any movie, whether it's the tiny The Rider, which is my favorite movie of last year or two years ago, which was a micro budget movie, or whether it's the remake of Blade Runner, there are problems that you have to figure out and you need time to figure that out. And if you don't have time, you just kind of are like going at it and it's trying to like hold water in your hands. It's impossible. So it's easier if you have time. But Larry Paul did tell me that, the production designer who's now retired and uh, same thing happened on La La Land. We had time to do it. We were not on the clock on payroll, but we were thinking about it. The time, the budget, and the labor budget. So I don't mean to be so dry in bringing that up, but those are the things that seem to be commonly compromised or, or reduced in movie making now. It's less than what we had because of my generation. I have a few decades that I can, okay, in that 10 years, that's how we did it. And then from the late 80s to the end of the 90s, we did it that way. And then from the 90s until, you know, so it's it's changed. And now this is where we're at now is that they don't want to spend any money on the art department. And often they will not even have a production designer on payroll when they're 
they're trying to start to location scouting. And that's what one of the things that I learned in the Stanley Kubrick exhibit is that he had his production designer when they were doing The Shining. They looked at all these different hotels. Where are we going to do the exterior of this? And they went. They, he sends his British production designer all throughout Canada, all throughout America, and they ended up choosing this one real location. And then they built a lot of it. But now they would just have a location guy going around. It's actually a money-saving thing when you have the person that's sort of, and that's what my job is, is to kind of have a big picture look on everything instead of just, you know, a location person who is reading the script and a hotel. Okay, we're going to find a hotel. Okay, what does that look like? And my job also is the pipeline directly to the director. You protect the director so that the director isn't clouded with so many people asking them questions. It's filtered through one person and it just makes it easier. So the point that I'm making is, is that that's one of the things that allowed for La La Land to become the movie it has become as we had more time on it than what they would have allocated originally and what they translated into is we get the Oscar for the best looking movie of the year. Pre-production, it goes back to some of the things we've talked about. Damien was really well prepared because he was the writer. He had done this lookbook. He had all his specifics pretty much in a row. He could tell us what colors he wanted his actresses in. He could show us pictures from movies and say, I love this red dress against this red wall. So we knew as we developed different sets, we'd look for that. If Mia was in a red dress, then we'd try and do something like that for her. Early on, before filming, he and the composer oh. had already written a rough soundtrack. Justin. So he could play Justin that. Justin Hurwitz. So we could kind of feel from the sound. Yeah, the music, music was the music it was written, the, the story, and about, actually that played a part in talking about huge. earlier when we said that the sets are driven by the dialogue, how much words had to be said before then an actor leaves a room, so the room has to be so big. Also in La La Land, we did have Justin Hurwitz's music, which was blasted as we were doing these different things, which drove all the sets. The size of Mia's apartment had to be rather large, bigger than what a bunch of young girls frugally sharing an apartment trying to make ends meet in Hollywood. It would never be this big, but we had to do all this big dance number in the beginning. The um, freeway dance in the very beginning had to be so big and so long because of what they were trying to accomplish there. So the music actually that played was a part really in that. And we actually that had that. Now Wes would ready. also boom Box. Bill Murray gave Wes a uh, really nice portable Bose analog tape player at the time, and Wes would play very loud music that would also... He then would use these songs, you know, the Rolling Stones and various artists, but he would have the actors work with the backdrop of the music that then he gets the rights to and uses in the movie. So he actually had this figured out But he didn't show those to mind. us before. He didn't play music for us. The he other, didn't play music for us, but it was Quentin usually on Quentin did set. On Inglorious Bastards. This was really interesting. It was the first time he'd done this. Really early in prep. It was like the first week that the D, everyone was there, the DP and the AD. He had us up to his office and he played the music he was going to use for the movie. And he was all excited about this. And it was really interesting. And plus it was interesting because he said, you know, I write to these beats and I it's almost like a metronome. So my dialogue is very rhythmic and it's important that I, I guess music's really important to him. But that was wonderful <coughs> to have that insight too. 
Whoa, holy shit. Do you want to open a window? I was trying to give you an entrance. Thank you. Mia, how'd the audition go? Yeah, same here. Which one there? Or Rachel? I don't know who Jen and Rachel are. And the worst. Well, I don't know if they were there. But that they were. Why is there a convention in the bathroom? Okay. Two minutes, people. Mia, you're coming, right? I can't. I'm working. What? Did she just say working? What? I'm sorry it didn't go well today, and there's like four things in my inbox that you're perfect for, and I will submit you, but right now, you're coming. It'll be fun. It's not gonna be fun. It could be. It's not. It's gonna be a bunch of social climbers, all packed into one of those big glass houses. This looks familiar. I was gonna give How that How long have you back. had this? Like, oh, come on, When else are you gonna get to see every Hollywood cliche crammed into the same room? We'll make fun of it together. <gasps> I'm disappointed in you, Lex. There's nothing to make fun of. This party's gonna be like humanity at its finest. Well, you mentioned now that the collaboration that you had with, in this case, the music, but I, I figured it segues perfectly into your collaboration with the costume designer and Mandy Moore, the mm -hmm. choreographer. You mentioned how, you know, the beats of her choreography would sometimes Big time. dictate Mia's apartment. You take what ends up being a, a practical location and yeah. now you're adding walls yeah. to make sure that yeah. things are shaped. And in this case, also for the costume design, this is what you had to say about it. Quote, in Mia's apartments, they cast the actresses, it's Emma Stone and three of her friends, on which then they based the choice for each one's dress color. And that informed the way we color each room to match the different dresses, close quote. Which I think is a yeah. very fascinating way to approach the overall design. What were some of the sequences that were the hardest to try and box all together? It was almost like working in the environment at Bob Ellsberg Studio where you can just walk to another building and you have the other departments and everybody was nearby. And that's not always the case in some of the modestly budgeted projects where the art department sometimes is across town. You have to get in a car and drive somewhere to get to production of it but um, we were close by to the costume department Damien actually requested a desk in the art department so he was more in the art department than in the production office I like to actually have a open bullpen set up for the art department where people are not in isolated offices where everybody is sort of hearing about what everybody's talking about so it's it is an open thing but we would get Damien coming in and out almost every day and I would encourage them and when we had our window of time where we would be able to talk with the director and often it would be the costume designer and the director of photography and obviously Sandy and us, we would quietly all sit together and talk. So everybody was hearing about what was coming from Damien's uh, mind and it didn't rely then on me having to then water down and relay the information to costumes or so we were all trying to figure this thing out together, which was, and then Mandy, the choreographer, was very much a part of that too. For the size budget of the movie that it was, we actually had, it was a scrappy warehouse, but we had a rather large setup that was quite good. They could come into this art room and start to look at our drawings for the various sets and these ideas that were being generated. It was mapped out and planned, not only with a geographical 
ebbs and valleys and mountains line that Damien drew, I actually have the original sketch that he did, which was basically just showing how the movie starts at a low point and then goes to these different heights and then goes to a low point where Emma and Ryan break up and then it goes to a high point again and it ends on a high point. The same was happening with color. It kind of started, although that was a good idea. He did want it kind of muted in the very beginning, but the reality is that there was quite poppy, colorful dresses and things on the freeway dance. And then you actually have the colorful dresses in Mia's apartment dance, but the, he wanted it heightened and diminished with muted colors to show the heightened love affair thing, which was at the planetarium. And then it would go down when they started to break up and become more muted. And then Ryan's apartment was rather bland also be a valley apartment you know just white walls and a few pictures here and there of his jazz things so the color it was more so that we were making sure that mary zofries the costume designer was aware that ryan's apartment was going to be just this muted thing the girl's apartment in the very beginning was rather colorful because we were referring to jacques Demy. It was more letting her know what we were doing, and then that would allow her to drive her. You know, I'd say that 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 was mostly the case in our films. We usually design them and then send a color drawing to the costume designers just to make sure there's no clashing. But in this case, for the, the back lot that leads to the coffee shop, Damien, he specifically said she's going to wear a blue scarf and either blue shoes or blue skirt. And that color I want on the walls on the back lot. So he painted that whole street and the little flower store French street with this Warner French Brothers. blue. And then from that, we, you know, that's pretty bright. And that was yeah. really Demi-ish. So he would paint whole parts of Versailles like wild colors for his street scenes in his movies. So that's when it sort of started. We could put in a pink fire hydrant and a green Fiat and then the uh, coffee shop could be pretty bright as well. And then in Mia's apartment, in the script it's there's no real description. She lives in an alcove, she has her friends, the posters of her icons on the wall. But as the costumes were developed, the girls were dressed in these primary colors and they came from his from uh, some of his um, Damien look and, book, they, and they were jewel which colors was, so um, bright red bright green yeah, David Hockney paintings no uh, I we think were, they were, were definitely from movies but the suggestion of matching the girls rooms to their dresses he liked and it worked really well because really you're not in them they're just flashes of color as they go through them and a long shot striped yellow just became something to you know when you're drawing room after room for depth or, or interest it's just to make sure that those textures are going to be interesting on camera. Another thing besides films he had us look at is he mentioned a lot of California artists like Edward Rouché and Hockney, his great um, sort of Mulholland-type landscapes full of color that our landscapes should be full of. They should be the purple jacarandas and the blue sky and the orange sunsets. So when I was looking for inspiration for Mia's apartment, I came across this really beautiful Hockney drawing of an interior that had a red striped couch. So that became that element. So, so Sandy actually had a there. couch covered in matching, yeah. in that matching fabric. So it was sort of a mm-hmm. nod to his, but it was just color, bringing more color into that. All right, I remember you. And I'll admit I was a little curt that night. Curt? Okay, I was an asshole. I can admit that. Okay. But requesting Iran from a serious musician is just, it's too far. My lord, did you just say a serious musician? 
I don't think so. Can I borrow what you're wearing? Why? Because I have an audition next week. I'm playing a serious firefighter. So you're an actress. I thought you looked familiar. Have I seen you in anything? Uh, the coffee shop on the Warner Brothers lot. That's a classic. Oh, I see. Yeah. You're a barista. And I can see how you could then look down on me from all the way up there. What's your name? Mia. Mia. Guess I'll see you in the movies. The fantasy of the dance sequence at the beginning, that was in the script and that was filmed. It went away for a while in final edits and then came back. What are you the, talking the about? Highway. The, the highway. The highway. So that starts the movie out with a big jolt. But otherwise you're starting, the sort of fantasy element was left to the back lot and Mia's apartment in a way. Because it's a story that is based in reality, but these kids are going to break into song and dance. So the things couldn't be totally realistic. They had to be kind of wonderful and magical. And then we but, left the reality to Sebastian because he was yeah. a more sober character. So his final bar and his apartments and everything are much more simple and realistic. And But Brando, you were saying, well, what was the difficult thing? And I would say probably the two bookends, which would be the freeway dance was challenging. It was, it was a little confusing and more so not on a danger factor, but the epilogue, we call it the epilogue grand finale dance where they dance into the studio and dance through sets. That was complicated and confusing also. The freeway thing was just a logistical challenge, just trying to figure out how it was like doing the fire stuff in Inglorious Bastards. It was dangerous. We showed Damien several options of freeway sections that we could actually close down and own and they were just on they were flat and then we showed him this one that was in the air and he said this is great we're going to do this so that was it was dangerous but the end it dangerous because I heard you talk about the fact that you were afraid of some dancers. Well, it was like there was a fall down that was rather low. It was only I would say it was almost knee height, maybe a little bit, because pedestrians are not allowed up there. And it was a definite eighty foot drop or something, and there were no nets or anything, and there were, everybody was just jumping around and running <laughs> bicycles. <Yeah. laughs> it was like, great. really dangerous. <laughs> And then what what made it harder was that it was very hot. And usually when you're out, people tend to, you don't know if you're getting sunstroke or heat. So nobody got hurt. It was amazing. So, But the end, we kind of had an idea and it was fantastical and it was written. It was very interesting, but it was complicated and confusing. And then the concept painting, which was to have the actors dance with a backdrop of a collage of the city of the iconic elements. To get to that figured out and finished was difficult. And I, I had the recruit of a wonderful, wonderful art director, production designer, Carl Sprague. He was my art director on Royal Tannenbaums. So we've done many movies together. He's an East Coast theater designer and watercolor artist. So actually I had Carl do a few what we call mood sketches, which were extremely loose and not specific watercolor washes. So the whole approach to La La Land was to do a little or almost no CGI or computer assistant designing. It was to be analog. 
So Carl was a watercolor illustrator. So we did some wonderful ideas, which went to the costume designer, it went to the cameraman, it went to Mandy. It got everybody excited and very motivated about this is how we would be planning this movie. But then Carl ended up being given the job to do this collage of a painting of the city, which actually started as a watercolor that was maybe 24 inches wide by 12 inches high. And that was the painting of the city that they dance in front of. And the plan was to have our paint department then take that and then translate it and paint it out as a painted backdrop. But because we got into a time crunch, I did recruit a company, JC Backings, which has done multiple backdrops, everything from looking out of the window in the trailer of Kill Bill. They did a fantastic desert backdrop for out the window, hand-painted. And they did all the city views in Molly's game for the Idris Elba character's office. I've worked with them extensively. So they actually took the image that Carl painted, a small painting, and blew it up to, it was massive. It was 140 feet, give or take, maybe more. Digitally blew it. Digi- well, it was, it was blown up. they didn't paint up. it. Right? They didn't paint it. Right. But then we took that, printed on a canvas backing, and then what we did was we had our paint department then come in and finesse the digital. It was it was a, really a painting, and it was quite tight and nicely done. And then they just, the painting department just punched it up a bit. But we had no time. It had to be done very quickly. So I believe that backdrop is in there. It should be stored in their archive okay. of stuff. We got to go find uh, it. But often, <laughs> so much stuff is just thrown out. There were elements that they danced by that should have been saved. Like there was a miniature Watts Tower, you know, the Simon Rhoda Watts Tower. Los done, Angeles. In yeah. Los Angeles, done out of rebar and painted pink. Beautiful. It was a nice little sculpture and that was just thrown out the grove of orange trees that they danced were maybe four foot high flat painted nice orange trees one of those should have been saved they were all thrown out the street lights that they danced with that were on like little rollers those were all They're all that was just thrown make. out but um, you also made models of this whole oh, thing and, well, and that, well, that well, allowed yeah, Lena yeah, to check all, with his camera uh, that everything was pretty much at the, right the other tool that we used to help everybody figure everything out and it played a big 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 part in the choreography with Mandy is to do what are called white models because they're basically unpainted foam core models that are everything from the freeway to the big dance in the soundstage in the grand finale and we also did the mo- extensive models for Inglorious Bastards whenever there's any dangerous stunt or potential danger to crew or actors with fire whatever things were done out with as a model so we did the theater many versions and sizes of the theater for Quentin to look at and for Bob Richardson the cameraman to help figure that out and the special effects people so the models do help none of those were saved either I would I have photos of the models, which is really nice. Didn't you also go in, we also went into empty warehouse and mapped it out so that the choreography could really yeah. be paced yeah. and ensure that she could get what she needed. Yes, we did that for the dance and the, uh, and Damien with La La Land, along with Linus, the cameraman, Linus had an iPad and Damien had an iPhone and they would literally capture whether it be Mandy and her assistant standing in for Mia and Sebastian 
So he virtually has the whole movie that he could edit through his iPhone. The simple tools that Damien used really helped him figuring out how to do the movie. That said, he still wanted it to be as analog as possible. I know the only real kind of trickery was the wire assisted floating in the planetarium. but pretty much most everything else was very in-camera, no CGI, very analog. But they painstakingly waited for the sun to be at a certain time, for sunsets to be almost surreal, and they were able to capture. I can't tell you how many people think that the little dance number after the- Party. Party. On the hilltop. That is on the hilltop in Griffith Park. They thought that was a set. It was not a set, and it was a one take on a crane rehearsed until exactly the right time for the sun and then they captured it it looks fake and that's exactly what he said he said i want the real locations to look fake you know something like what is wrong with this Mm. but also that was shot on film it was very interesting because when you work with a british director and we have been very very fortunate to work with martin madonna who's fantastic i think seven psychopaths is a fantastic movie another movie about la that just fell between the cracks that was shot on film it's weird how many recent things since tape has come into vogue how many things we've actually shot on film and low budget things too and actually Charlotta Bruce Christensen another brilliant cinematographer on Molly's Game I lobbied with her to shoot Molly's Game on film and it lost to tape and it was unfortunate but it is interesting to see how many recent things we've worked on have been filmed I got a call back what come on (laughs) for what for a TV show the one that I was telling you about Earlier. The Dangerous Minds meets the OC? Yeah. Congratulations, that's really incredible. Exciting. I feel like I said negative stuff about it before. What? It's like Rebel Without a Cause, sort of. I got the bullets. Yes. You've never seen it. I've never seen it. Oh my. You know it's playing at the Rialto. Really? Yes. You should, I mean, I'll I can take you. Okay. You know, for research. For research? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Monday night, 10, 10 o'clock. Yeah, great. Okay. For research. You used this definition a moment ago in regards to, to La La Land and taking real locations that feel fake. You mentioned Jacques Demy with the French movies and mm-hmm. the old Hollywood, this idea of recreating the studio feel. And that power in it is the ability of turning real life locations into movie sets, getting the maximum emotion out of hopefully the minimum amount of work every step of the way. I'm thinking about just carefully added details, whether it's the Hermosa Pier, you know, you add lamppost, the Rialto Theater inside, which I'm sure you have to renovate a little bit. We take what some people would consider it a limitation and turn it around to an advantage. And that's that if you have a money limitation, it actually is not a bad thing. So at the Hermosa Beach Pier, you can't paint the whole thing and but we're able to bring the light posts, you can bring the benches, you can bring certain elements.
We talked about location scouting in regards to being able for you guys to envision what a location could become. You know, you take a hospital. Well, I have another. I have yeah. another secret weapon, which isn't secret, but there's another concept <laughs> illustrator, uh, Joanna Bush, and we've worked together a bunch before. So that's one of the reasons that I do use her, and that's also contributes to the success of me and Sandy. So when you work together a bunch, it allows you to do great thing. But Joanna and I have a process where if I take a keyframe photograph, and I like to consider myself an okay photographer, so I can take a keyframe, an angle, she then will paint into that digitally. And she's really good with adding actually the actors and she can add Emma and Ryan. And we sold a bunch of the set ideas to Damien, you know, like uh, the simple thing in Mia's apartment with her bedroom, it was actually anguishing over her bedroom because basically, and I'm not diminishing the importance of all the other sets in between, but when you open the movie, it should be like really proper. And you're also the one time when you were showing her world because everywhere else you go, it's where she works. It's trying to get a job. You never show her actual. So it was very important. So we actually, so Joanna was able to show the size of the Bergman poster on the wall. That we made it bigger. Part. We made it smaller. We, you know, so it's, it's easier to actually do it as a concept. So she was able to do but that. But at that through. point, and that's become hard because you've started using that tool a lot early in the game because she needs photographs of all the furniture, too, to do that. So sometimes yeah. we're not really ready to have that done yeah. yet. So we work together, and, and I'm just repeating what Sandy is saying. She can actually lay in some of the furnishings that Sandy would When you first go into a place, there's always something... Well, first of all, it's location scouting. So the directors liked something about it, whether it's the exterior's perfect or the interior's perfect. And then you work on the other part in... Because you guys also land. talking about detail. We mentioned the lamppost, but sometimes yeah. you just go in and paint a wall and that changes the emotion of the entire oh, yeah. place. Yeah. On the early Quentin movies, actually right up all of his movies, and we did like seven. And then Wes Anderson, they would show a movie each week. There would be a movie night. And Damien got into that also. And we looked at all the Jacques Denis movies. And when you look at and analyze and really see them the big, the not on like a little television screen, if you see them projected, they're really quite powerful. But he really does a lot of really practical locations. And then he'll manipulate them with color and paint and be even, even outside streets. And that was our marching orders with Damien. It was, this is what we're doing. So we would add color and do these things in a practical location. It would be fantastic. slightly sort of related would be the chapel in Kill Bill. Uh, Kill Bill because that was the outside was interesting because it was in this expanse well it was desert. where it was we had to transform the interior into it was sort just of a, a western a, look uh, yeah because it was a hodgepodge we literally built an entire set inside of impoverished that. desert community baptist church inside with all kinds of mirrors and an altar and mm -hmm. so that had to come out the wooden floor had to come in we added built, a porch so that we you added got that the whole searcher's final look of her with the background of the mountains behind and other cool things along those lines were in Tenenbaums, we had to do this pastiche of Margot Tenenbaum, and we went into one mansion, and she's with the Arctic explorers, and she's with her French girlfriend, and she's getting her hair done. And it was just 
using a bunch of rooms within the house and transforming them that way. So the wallpaper behind the hair dryers was sort of this wonderful palm frony deco thing. And then the blue French apartment room had a reflection of the Eiffel Tower in the window. That was a really fun way of doing just minuscule sets with color and so really design. Bring a lot it was out. really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm glad we were able to touch on so many different movies in regards to, mm. you know, your process. My last question to you, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, your legacy as designers and something we haven't really explored yet, which is you mentioned your collaboration with each other. Quote, what we do is create the quiet background world that helps tell the story of a character. Even though the actors are at the center, we allow for the audience eye to travel around the frame with more space to provide story and information. There was a point in our career when me and Sandy realized we'd function best together, so we became a team. It's almost like having two production designers, and to me, it's critical to give a lot of voice to the decorating department, close quote. So since you did start working together, you've been able to bring the best out of each other. And what is a conversation like with yourselves in regards to the work you've produced and the work you're still looking to produce? Well, I think it's interesting because first of all, I'm really fortunate to be able to work with Sandy. It is like having two production designers. And that's what I tell producers and the director, you're getting two for the price of one. And (laughs) we are both lucky. I'm super lucky. But I think that the luxury that we are afforded, and this is going back to your first question, we're careful about who we work for, like like a Damien, that's a super lucky thing, or what the story is. We're very careful about, you know, I don't want to come off with arrogance and say that we are very picky, but we, we kind of are. But by doing that and by being careful translates into doing a movie and then there's a cycle where then part of our job is is to get the next movie and sometimes that takes many months sometimes it takes a while so all of this is being brought up in that we're fortunate that we allow ourselves to be able to have the time to be patient with that i know a lot of folks that do what we do will go right from one movie to the next movie and then to the next movie and to the next movie and what that becomes it becomes so routine and so much like a job. Like when we do a movie, we're so engrossed in it. And so, I mean, I'm even from Molly's game in my mind. And then even the movie that we were starting to prep, that we prepped for a year and fell apart, True American. You're so thinking about it. That's great to actually wash that out and start fresh. And I think that what it translates into is being able to do a pure thought and different thing on each individual movie. So we've actually done a bunch of different movies about L.A., but they're different. They're all different. And I think if you're just doing one movie after the other, the other, the other, and that's the way a lot of people work. But when you're able to really start fresh, and I think it's harder for the people that work back to back on things. It's harder for people to really not be repeating themselves and doing anything. And when you are repeating yourself, you're not doing a pure and interesting vision. La La Land was really a frugal, modest thing, but we gave it so much thought. And so, you know, they got so much out of us that we end up with a, a, a gem. But then you look at the credit list and they're all like that. They're all really interesting. Now, maybe some were not super, super hits. I still love Martin Madonna's Seven Psychopaths. I think it was fantastic. I think Jackie Brown is like one of Quentin's best movies. These are all gems that have been broken apart by having have time, time off. So maybe that that having that time off is translated into 
Now, we do not have children, and we've, I mean, I know a lot of people that have families, and they have to keep everything going all the time, and, all, and it's harder, but we're, we have the luxury of being able to have our scenario that has allowed us to be picky and careful. Well, you know, you say picky, and I think or I'm maybe lucky picky because you, right you choose, well, it's important to like what you're doing, and the films you like to do are, I can't say analog, but very hands-on and more, maybe a little more intimate to so some I of the bigger films you're Yeah, I can tell about. from a script. And it makes it really fun if, to work yeah, on them. Yeah, and usually if on first read, and if it's something that I really want to go after, I could tell this is going to be a really cool movie. And actually... Sandy had the second sense also with Reservoir Dogs. Nobody knew who Quentin was on Reservoir Dogs. He was unknown. And we got that script and Sandy said, this is like, this is great. You can tell. I think we do have the sixth sense. And I knew that with La La Land. I knew it. And then that translates into having a body of work that's pretty decent and, and, and diverse. It's not based on volume. It's based more on, for the most part, modestly budgeted movies. And they're all really interesting. And then in those downtimes, you know, we don't really talk about films that much, but the downtimes, I think we enjoy doing similar things, whether it sort of involves our sort of architectural buffness. Well, it's like location Searching scouting. out, you know, traveling to look at different... We've been location scouting while we're here. We just start looking yeah, at... Yeah, but we look at architecture, we look at art, and it's that constant <laughs> just seeing it and also seeing it and experiencing it together so that later when those things become useful in doing films, there they are. And you gain emotional perspective. Yes, exactly. Yeah. David and Sandy. But we could talk for <laughs> hours and yeah. hours and hours. Exactly. I want to thank you so, so much for no, taking the time. You. This was uh, our life. pleasure. Yeah. So, it's our you. pleasure. I hope you get something out of this. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much again. And there you have it, folks. Thank you to David and Sandy for taking the time to meet us in London and for sharing their stories. And to Eric Boss for doing such an amazing job final mixing these episodes. If you enjoy our program, please help us by taking a moment to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send your favorite episode to a friend to help fellow cinephiles and new listeners find the show. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access. Soundstage Access.